Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's edition of Expeditions on the Engaging Faith podcast. And this week, we're going to be exploring uh, Revelation chapter 4, verses 4 through 11, and talking more in depth about this throne room scene and the 24 elders and the four living creatures, and just talk about uh, more detail about that and, and various meaning, etc., that's been associated with it from the various uh, different positions and and interpretive models. So excited to jump right into it. So without any uh, more waiting, let's just get after it. All right. So we're in Revelation now. Like uh, we talked about last week, from this point forward, we're going to have to read kind of you know bigger sections of scripture so that we can stay in the overall context. If we when we're down in the weeds, if we stay in the weeds, right? too long, we can't really see what's above it and get a full view of, you know, where are we at. So we want to make sure that we uh, do that, and we'll come back and hit uh, the important parts of these passages. So Rick, yes. are you ready to read? Ready. We're going to read Revelation uh, chapter 4, verse 4 through 11. Go ahead. Surrounding the throne of 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white, had crowns of gold on their heads. <coughs> From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Amen. <clears throat> Wow, right? Quite a scene. Quite, quite a scene that we have here in Revelation. And, and how do, what do we make of it? I mean, how do, we, how do we look at this scene, and especially as, as believers reading Scripture and trying to figure out how does this stuff apply to us today? What's, you know, what's the practical application of 24 elders around a throne and, and these crazy-looking creatures that are, you know, are around the throne singing holy, 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 right? And, and, and what, what do we do with that? How do we how do we view it? What's its purpose? And so this is one of these areas where we don't have uh, as much delineation between the different interpretive models, right? I mean, really and truly, we don't fully know what what this scene is, right? So all four views accepted yeah that yeah all four views except well all four views accepted and all four views kind of have a blend I mean yeah, yeah. when when you when you look at the different 
scholars and theologians and writers, you know, that are that are talking about this. They all, no matter which one, they all kind of have these. It could be this. It could be this. They may lean towards a particular spot, but even that particular spot has a common thread among all of them. And probably the most common when we're talking about the 24, well actually before we get to that, we, we've mentioned a little bit this whole, what's the Hebrew idea? If you take the Hebrew mindset to, to this, how, how, how would they think about this scene that they're, that they're looking at, right? Pharisees and Sadducees and all, all of them at that time, right, they don't care about what John's revelation is because they don't accept Jesus as the Messiah, right? And, and they're persecuting at this time. They're one of the great persecutors of the church, right? Mm-hmm. So, so they don't have rabbis and, uh, that are sitting here dissecting the letters that John has sent out and, and giving their positions on it. But there are elements, there are aspects, there are things that, are, that we see in the Revelation that exist elsewhere in Scripture, that there is commentary in the Old Testament on. And so we can go back and we can look at the Hebrew mindset and say, hey, here's how they interpreted this before. Or this is what they think of of these particular aspects that we can see uh, in the Old Testament. So we can kind of derive. And one of those that we talked about is all this culminates in the wedding of 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 the Lamb, right? In the wedding of Christ to his church. Revelation is, is all going to lead us to this wedding and to this wedding feast. So the idea of the, of the wedding and the, and the Hebrew mindset and the ancient Near Eastern mindset, uh, we can learn a lot, and it has some type of application to this. Uh, so that's a kind of fifth interpretive model that's sitting out there uh, that's pretty fascinating. So just to kind of stay on introducing a little bit of that, one of those here is that we're being introduced to the Father. We were introduced to the Father of the Son, right? And now we're being introduced to those who are in attendance or are going to be in attendance at the wedding. And the importance of these, uh, of these individuals or these beings is it pertains to the wedding feast of the Lamb and the, and the wedding supper, the wedding between uh, Christ and his bride. And so there are those elements that play out and overlay that help us understand a little bit more what's being communicated to us. So that being said, we have these 24 elders, right? And, and this, this is the most common threads across the board of what these 24 elders are. What do you guys think they are? Or who are they? And I know you're reading, you're cheating. <laughs> reading ahead, but I mean, have you even ever even thought about it? To me, since the number is 24, and I've always seen, especially going back to Old Testament, you've always got 12 represents something. So, you know, I don't know, is it, it almost kind of think of like the House and the Senate. Maybe you have so many of this side, so many of this side. That's very intuitive. Court. Because when you go back to Old Testament, you've got the 12 tribes of Israel. Even on Ishmael's side, mm-hmm. you have 12 rulers, mm-hmm. you know, 12 disciples, you know, there's a pattern, it's, isn't it's there? It's like a pattern every time, so it just makes you think there's something to do with the number 12, even though it's a, a full amount of 24, <coughs> what do those numbers represent? Absolutely. When we think about the temple in the Old Testament, when, when you go back and you read, right, uh, just the layout 
and, and everything that the temple is supposed to be and the activities that are taking place and those things, we know that that's an earthly representation of what? Of the temple in heaven. I mean, we're told that in Scripture. So this idea, Stephanie, that you're bringing up is spot on. I mean, it's right on. That we have to think about that. We can't ignore this, this pattern that exists. And we see it through the Old Testament, and we see aspects of it carried on forward into the New Testament, and there's meaning associated with that. So these 24, and what's surprising, though, is when you kind of look at some of these folks, uh, some of them don't even really talk about that in its entirety. But, but overall, this is, this is probably the most common thread that exists in all these interpretive models, that these 24 elders represent the royal priesthood in heaven, that these are beings, angelic beings, that are representative of the believers, the church, and, and that they're representative of both believers that are out of the, the nation of Israel and those out of the, the Gentile nation. And that's probably the most common thread that exists. Another one is that, and this one's kind of weird to me. This is more your idealist position. Even, but what's amazing is some preterists, right, take this position right here. That it's really a narrative effect. It's, it's a, uh, it, it rounds out this scene to drive home important, you know, important points. So it, it creates that this heavenly court that they're here to quote-unquote, and this is literally quotes from these folks, to create the proper effect. So think of a scene in a movie, and you want this really dramatic scene to drive home you know, the power of what is, is underlying it or what's behind it. And so you bring in all this imagery, and you bring in all this pomp and circumstance, and you've got all these elements that represent certain certain underlying things, whatever those things may be, right? In this case, this is just really driving home the authority of God over all of creation yeah. and over man. May I read a footnote? Yeah, go ahead. The elders here are not the elders of the church, but elders of the angels, because here, before the Lord's second coming, they are sitting on the thrones already. In God's creation, angels are the most ancient ones. Their elders are the elders of the whole creation of God. That they sit on the thrones with golden crowns on their heads indicates that they must be the rulers of the universe until the millennial kingdom, when the authority to rule the earth will be given to the overcoming saints. That they are clothed in white garments and have a harp and golden bowls full of incense indicates that now they are also priests before God. Whereas in the millennial kingdom, the reigning overcomers will be the priests of God and Christ. Man, that's great. Yeah. What ver What is that That's one? the recovery version. The recovery version. Yeah. Now, that should bring to mind, what did we talk about for a year in the supernatural? Right? That falls a lot more in line with, with that mindset mm -hmm. that, it, that existed. That you have these elders, and when we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6 and the... And the, the, the uh, Tower of Babel and all of that that comes out, man, God separated the nations according to the number of the sons of God. And we we know that that's not man, although we know there's a number of folks in the church that say, yeah, that's just the, you know, the sons of Seth, right? 
But the language doesn't allow for that. Right. They're the Elohim. <coughs> they're, the, they're, they're the heavenly court, the spiritual beings. And then we know in the table of nations, there's, there's 70 to 72 nations right there. Mm-hmm. So, man, these sons of God, that God gave them authority. So when we read that, that lines up. I mean, after all, these are thrones. Here's God on his throne, and around him are 24 elders sitting on thrones dressed in white with crowns on their head. Man, if that's not symbolic of authority and power that's been granted. Ruling over God's ruling creation. Ruling over God's creation. Right? We went to we went to First Kings, we know with, with Ahab that God allowed this heavenly court, these sons of God, to make decisions that impacted and affected the affairs of men. We know that. So that's not out of line at all and needs to be maintained. So really, when we look at all that, how could this be right? Right? I mean, how, how could this just be, you know, some type of, of poetic devices or symbolic devices to create a scene so that you have the right effect when you're reading it and thinking about it? I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Right? I get, the, I get that embedded in that is some symbolism, right? I mean, we, we have certain things that we think about when we think of crowns. We think of white robes, and we think of thrones that people are sitting on or beings are sitting on. So we can accept the symbol. Symbolism is absolutely there. But, man, there's something real that's happening. In the spiritual realm. In, in the spiritual realm. Yeah that John is seeing. But that spiritual realm is way more real in a, in a lot of ways than we are because it, that's true. The angels were created before us. And man, there's a whole established hierarchy that we don't know fully what it is, but we get hints of it in Scripture, right? So the other is that this represents the heavenly temple, right? And that these are our counterparts, that these are the counterparts to what's happening here. So where would we see that? I need somebody to grab First Chronicles chapter 24, verse 4. Do I have a taker? I'll take that one. You got that, Lane? Well, and you know what? Then jump over to, if you don't mind, sure. to 25, uh, verses 9 through 13 when you're done with that. So I'll let you read, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah, First Chronicles 24, verse 4. Nine I'm sorry, Andy. How about, Andy, you be ready with Matthew 19, 28, okay? All right, go ahead. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) A large number of leaders were found among Eleazar's descendants than among Ithamar's, and they were divided accordingly, 16 heads of families from Eleazar's descendants and eight heads of families from Ithamar's descendants. All right, so chapter 25, verse 9 through 13. Go ahead, Darren. Give me all these names here. <laughs> the first lot of Asaph fell to Joseph, and the second to Gedaliah, to him, his relatives, and his sons, twelve. The third to Zechur, uh, his sons, and his relatives, twelve. The fourth to Isri, his sons, and his relatives, twelve. The fifth to Nethaniah, his sons, and his relatives, twelve. The sixth to Micaiah, his sons and relatives, twelve. The seventh to Jesaraelia, his sons and relatives twelve, and the eighth to Jesaiah, his sons and his relatives twelve. 
I went too far. No, I did. I did go too far. Sorry. That's all right. So we have this repetition of twelve, and then we have when you when you follow all of that stuff through, and we don't want to read every bit of it. This is what you wind up with. You you have this these orders that exist where there's 24 in the Levitical and 24 priestly orders, basically, in the Levitical priesthood, okay? Because then you get into, all right, out of these 12 tribes, then, you know, uh, they have their representation. So you have this 24 and 24 that exists, and it shows up numerous times in the Old Testament. So if what's happening in the heavenlies we see a counterpart here on earth, well, then the reverse is also true, right? So are these 24 elders just represent representatives of the 24 Levitical priestly orders that exist? Well, probably. That's probably got a part to play in it, right? But what about the New Testament? Would we have representation from the New Testament? I, I would think so because that repetition of 12 shows up, doesn't it? And where does it show up? What did Jesus do? Right. And the 12 disciples he picked, God told him to pick. So it was in God's mind and plan that I want you to have 12 disciples that you start out with. Well, why would God do that? You know, we, we don't know the full answer to the why God does that, but we know God did it. So is it right to just say, well, this is only about the Old Testament representation of the Levitical priesthood and the 24 orders of it? I mean, is that entirely right? There's another possibility, you know, that is out there, and it comes more from the whole Messianic Jewish side, saying, hey, the 12, the 24 represent the 12 patriarchs. You have how many tribes in Israel? You have 12 tribes. And those tribes began with the father, right? Twelve sons. So you have the twelve patriarchs, and then the other half represents the, the twelve apostles, the disciples of Christ. Do we see any support for that in Scripture? Yeah, let's go read. Somebody grab, well, Andy, you got Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that he who have followed me, Wow. Man, Jesus has told his 12 disciples that when he sits on his throne, they're going to sit on 12 thrones, and they've got a purpose for sitting on them. Right? They're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So the whole point is, do we know exactly who these 24 elders are? No, we don't. But we have some clear indications throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New that gives us a, a, a fairly good idea who we're looking at. And, and this idea of a council that's ancient, that's with God, is absolutely biblical. And, it, and it's ancient, and it carries forward, and it's likely that with the New Testament and the 12 disciples and what Jesus did, that this council of 24 elders is made up of, of the church and God's chosen people, 12 <coughs> patriarchs. That to me sounds pretty doable. 
sounds a lot more doable in my mind than, than this. It's just a created symbol to make the story flow and, you know, drive the import of what it means. Well, God is too much of a God of order to, to do it for creativity and yeah, here let me okay. let me spin this awesome story that'll blow your mind and keep you wondering too forever. Too much order and everything. Yeah, it's more about purpose than show. Agreed. There's a purpose behind it, and so for us, we're not going to know. We're not going to know completely and fully till we die and we go to heaven, right? And we're with Christ. Uh, but there's a reason that God wants us to know this, and there's things that we can glean and, and begin to understand about it. And probably the biggest uh, is the fact that, you know what? God has chosen in his sovereignty. We're his co-workers. Man, God, in, in that in itself, God is saying, hey, I've in my sovereignty chosen that I'm going to create you and that you're going to be my ambassador." You're going to be a royal priesthood. You're going, to, you're going to work alongside me in my creation to accomplish my will and purposes. And guys, inherent in that is God has gifted Frank. God has given him abilities and capabilities. He's given Tammy abilities and capabilities. If we're praying and we're seeking out God, God's going to, he's going to guide our footsteps. He's going to direct our paths. His word is a light upon our feet, right? Does that mean that God tells Frank every single thing that Frank's going to do 24 hours a day, seven days a week? It doesn't. I mean, go ahead. But David had that in the Old Testament. He and God were in communication all the time. Well, absolutely. But did God tell David to get out of bed and put that robe oh, well, on? No. But, or, or to decide. That's what I'm talking about, right? Okay. Yeah. So, so, and this is important because... God gives us clarity to go in directions and to do specific things and to talk with certain people and, and gives us clarity and direction in discerning and having wisdom about things. And when we ask him, God says, I'm going to speak to you more and more if you'll, if you'll come to me. But he's also gifted you, yeah. right? Just as Tony preached last night, you have a unique will. God has given you common sense to, to do the things in your Christian life. Uh, that do not go against his will. And he allows you he to allows do that, it. doesn't he? Right. He allows you to have freedom to make decisions. And we know this is biblical. Okay? You, you get to decide things. So if we're really in tune with God and God has given us clarity, I want you to do this. That doesn't mean that God tells you all the details and the means of how you're going to accomplish the this. He gives that freedom to you. He gives that freedom to you to live out your life and make decisions. Hence, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. <laughs> you know, hence the reality that we make bad decisions. But we're his co-workers, so he lets us figure it out. He doesn't predetermine every aspect of your life. Right? <laughs> he, he doesn't do that. Well, we, we see that in heaven. How, if that weren't true, how did the angels, how did a third of the, the, the angels, uh, right? Yeah, how, how did they bail? How did they make a decision to go against God? And, and we know that he uses them to make decisions that impact us. So this model exists from the beginning all the way through. And we see it here. What does a futurist say, though? 
this is one one deviation from all of this. They they agree with different aspects of this, but here's what they they glom onto this one and they say, hey, we believe that it's representative of the assembly, that these beings are representatives of the church, and not just representatives in terms of, hey, we're standing in place of, but they're actual represent they're actual people from the church. Now, some will say they're angels when you go to the first chapter 2 and 3, right? But they say, hey, this right here is proof that the rapture happens before the tribulation. Because here we are, we're in this heavenly court scene before the great tribulation begins, and we see the church represented. We see the church in their white robes and their victorious crowns, and they're before the throne of God. And then they get to the next part, and they lump it in as further proof. So, Stephanie, I know you've brought up a couple of times, you know, what are these seven spirits of God? Man, that seems to be new. How do we understand the Holy Spirit? And that's really the big view of, the, of most of these folks is the seven spirits of God, the seven torches that we read that are before the throne. That God just says right here, or to John, that these are the seven spirits of God. Wait, I thought God only had one spirit. I thought it was the Holy Spirit, and that's it. So, what do you guys think about that? Sometimes in the past, we came across this before, and then ended up reading some scripture, and I don't know where it was, but we basically read what those seven spirits were. Yeah, so now that you brought that up, because that's right. I mean, hey, if we're looking, interpret scripture with scripture, right? So are we being introduced to something totally foreign, totally new to us? That, wait a minute, I thought you have the Holy Spirit, but here you got seven spirits of God that are standing before his throne as torches. And wait a minute, that kind of lines up with the seven lampstands at the beginning of Revelation. And then we're told in that that, hey, there's these seven spirits. Go ahead. Oh, I have a scripture if I'm going to read it. It's in Isaiah. No, yeah, great. It should be Isaiah yeah. 11 too. Mm-hmm. Well, hold that thought. So <laughs> Tammy got there before you did, really. <laughs> right? Well, the, the futurist says these seven lamps, these are the seven lamps that are talked about in, at the beginning of Revelation. The, the churches that we've said or that we've read about in chapter 2 and 3. And so if, that, if they're before the throne and you've got the elders, man, the church has been raptured. There's your, there's your proof. Along with what we talked about out of verse 1 in, in chapter 4. Do you think that's what is going on? Yeah. In substance and... Now, wait a minute. You're not going to go read Isaiah 11, right? No. She's got that. All right. <laughs> go ahead, Frank. In substance and existence, God's Spirit is one. <clears throat> In the intensified function and work of God's operation, God's spirit is sevenfold. Sevenfold spirit of God. So, so now we're going to read where this sevenfold spirit of God is in the Old Testament. This isn't new. This isn't some deviation from the Trinity. It's not a deviation from the Holy Spirit. And this is the dominant position uh, of, of just about everybody across the board on what, what are these seven spirits? Well, this is the Holy Spirit. Because what's the number seven 
signify. It's perfection, right? It's complete unity, complete perfection. And that the and, and the Holy Spirit is is powerful, right? And that Holy Spirit, especially when we think about uh, which, what what Tammy's going to read, when we think about what is the function of the Holy Spirit in our life, right? So go ahead, Tammy, read Isaiah. So this is a prophecy about Jesus. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So th- this is the Spirit of the Lord, number one, right? What's the next two? Wisdom and understanding. Wisdom, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding. Counsel and might. The spirit of counsel, the spirit of might. Knowledge and fear. The spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. There's your sevenfold. There's your sevenfold spirit of God that's all in its complete perfection and unity of the Holy Spirit. We're seeing the Holy Spirit. And when you think about Jesus, when Jesus was ascending into heaven... Man, he told us, right? He said, it's, I, it's important I go. <laughs> so that what? So the, promised one. the promised one can come. And that promised one is the Holy Spirit, but not just the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of the Lord. Spirit it's the sevenfold Spirit of God coming into your life. And all of those things that that, that sevenfold Spirit represents, or it doesn't represent, what the sevenfold, sevenfold Spirit is is there to operate. Man, we are sealed. And and in essence, what are we given? We're given the Spirit of the Lord. We're given His wisdom. We're given His understanding. We're given His might. We're given His counsel. Think about that. Man, that should make goosebumps just raise up on you that, wow, this this is the promise that God has given to us, that's dwelling in us, that has sealed us, as belonging to him. Amen. And Jesus says, that spirit, when he comes, is going to do something in your life. Right? Because we're being transformed. According to Scripture, we're being transformed into the very image of Christ from glory to glory to glory. Paul says he ran his race, right? Man, he ran it with all that he had. And the Holy Spirit is there Leading us. That's what Jesus said he was going to do. He's going to teach us. He's going to bring us into understanding. Wisdom, knowledge, understanding, right? Counsel of God. He's going to guide us through life. He's going to watch over and keep us because we're sealed by him. That's the sevenfold spirit of God. And that sevenfold spirit is right there before his throne. (laughs) Continually before him. That's amazing. John is seeing this. So what about these four living creatures? Well, we've seen this too, right? I mean, we've we've read the vision that Ezekiel has in Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10. Man, Daniel has a vision of the throne room. Isaiah has elements of the throne room that is seen there. But you have these four living creatures. Are these the same ones from Ezekiel? And, and I'm gonna we'll, we'll do a couple nuanced side notes here in a minute. But Ezekiel's vision. Remember, we're talking about perspectives, right? Man, after these things, there's a change in perspective. 
a change in potential content or material, not necessarily a change in time frame. One of those realities is you see it in Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10. Ezekiel's vision, he sees these creatures, but he sees what's below. So perspective, he's seeing what's below the throne of God, and he makes it clear. I mean, he makes it clear. He's looking up, and he sees the throne of God, and one above it, above these creatures, whose wings are flapping. you got wheels within wheels on the chariot of God, right? And all these things. You've got, you've got these creatures that are bearing the throne of God up. And they have multiple eyes and faces, right? And it's the, it, it's the similar faces that you see in these creatures, Except they have a face here, and a face here, and a face here, and a face here. And they're bearing up the throne of God. That's different from the description that we have here. We're now at the throne of God, and there are four living creatures. Man, living creatures. Do you grab a hold of that? These aren't spirits. These are these creatures... These are a different category. These aren't spirit beings. These are alive. These are living creatures. And they have a single description. One is like a lion, right? One is like an ox. One is like an eagle. And one is like a man. And they're alive. What is all of that? And they're above the throne. And they're constantly singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What could that represent? What you thinking there, Rick? Well, and also they're covered, <laughs> covered with eyes. Yeah. Front and back. I mean, covered with eyes. Yes. Living creatures covered with eyes. You're not going to sneak up on him. <laughs> <laughs> under his wings, too. They're under the wings. They're everywhere. Yeah. Man, they're covered with eyes. Yeah. Here's a footnote. Ready? Go ahead. Love those footnotes. Around the throne of God, the 24 elders represent all the angels, whereas the four living creatures represent all other living creatures. The first, like a lion, represents the beast. The second, like a calf, represents the cattle. The third, like a man, represents mankind. And the fourth, like an eagle, represents the fowl. If you go back to Genesis and look at God's creation, beasts of the field, the birds of the air, man himself. When he created it, yeah. when he created in Genesis, right? Right. So, so here we are, going back and forth, and we're seeing. So this alludes, in a way, to the creation story, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And that creation is continually before him. Now, wasn't there something encircling his throne? What was it? Rainbow. A rainbow. Wow. I mean, we, so, so there's a lot of things here, right? We see the harmony of all that has ever been, all that is, and all that will be, all laid out through Scripture, building on one another, pointing back to each other, coming into their fulfillment. We see this. And these are living creatures around the throne room of God, constantly doing what? worshiping him we also see something else this idea of hierarchy of some type is there why somebody grab isaiah chapter six 
and read the first three or four verses, and it's really verse three that we're going to focus on or pay the most attention to. Anybody who's going to get it. it? You got that, Tammy? How many verses? Uh, verse one through four, let's say. In the year of King Uzziah, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Man, so now he's named them. <laughs> Isaiah has said, hey, I saw the seraphim. Mm -hmm. Well, these aren't the same beings that are below that are bearing the throne of God. We're clearly in the throne room. Isaiah is seeing the same type of imagery. There's consistency. Mm -hmm. In, in these visions. So we, we see the seraphim, and they're called the burning ones. Now that's interesting. They're the burning ones, and the shining ones. The seraphim. Well, when you go back and you read Ezekiel's account of the ones that are below, they're the cherubim. And we're not talking the little fat chubby <laughs> angels of love with the, the bow. Right? I mean, I didn't see in Ezekiel's description of the cherubim that are bearing the throne of God that he said, oh, yeah, they were little cheeky, fat, cute little <laughs> kids with angels and little bows and arrows. Very portly. Yeah, very portly. That's not what we're seeing. And, and all of this, you know, with Elijah and, and, and you know, all of what was taking place with the fiery wheels when the chariot came and... and wheels within wheels and all that, that's fascinating too. We don't know what all that means, right? But we've talked about some of the deception that could come. We're already seeing it out in the world that there are people who go as far as say, that's aliens and all this kind of stuff. And here's proof, man. <laughs> you know? Well, no. It's not. But one of the interesting things is that rainbow around the throne of God, man, it's a covenant, right? It's a covenant that he made with Noah. And there's one color. He says it looks like an emerald. Now, what does all that mean? We don't know for sure. We know there's a covenant of a rainbow. We know that God's wanting to wants John to see that this is, the, this is green like an emerald. So we have a color and we have a gem. Well, does anybody know how an emerald grows in nature, the emerald crystal? Man, totally fascinating. And at first, it may not seem fascinating, but green is a color of peace. Right? So here's God with a rainbow. And here's what's funny. If you look at a rainbow, are we seeing... If, if the rainbow, if you could step back and the earth wasn't here, would the rainbow only be an arc? Wouldn't. What would it be? Circle. It'd be a circle. And so the rainbow that's described... In, in Revelation 4, 1 through 3, right, is encircling the throne of God. And it's the color of an emerald. But how does an, how does an emerald grow? It's a crystal, right? Man, it grows. What, what's the term for six-sided? Here's the vision I want you to have, right? So you have the seven spirits of God. You have a seven, right? And so this is how, this is how it grows. An emerald, it grows this way. Now here's the important part. If I, if I come down, let me see, did I do this right? Now this is a sloppy one, but what do you see there? Like, a little more of a, 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 a,
It's a cube. Okay. I know I did it wrong. Oh, I see. My angles are off. If all my angles were perfectly the same, right? If they were perfectly the same, it, there would be a cube. Now, all right, no. I don't have all my perfect sides and blah, blah, blah. Hexagon is correct. All right. Hex, yeah. Now, and I'm going to blow this one too because I can't draw this correct, all right? But you have a hexagon, right? And then if I connect all those, what do I have? Circle. I have a circle, and I connect, and I have a cube, and then inside the cube, I'm going to have a tetrahedron. Say what? <laughs> I'm going to have a tetrahedron, a three-sided pyramid, or triangle. Now, you say... Why are we getting a geometry lesson? What does that matter? Well, you know, God's a God of order. And God has all these things that he's telling us. Do you know what all that is? Those are the building blocks. Those are the geometric building blocks of all creation. Wow. So inside the sphere of the earth, you can have a geometric hexagon or cube. And in a tesseract. Now, where's that stuff seen, man? You see that stuff in movies and Marvel comics, man, the Tesseract, and it's the power and all that. This is where this stuff comes from. And then inside of that is a tetrahedron. And you see these patterns played out all throughout creation and in mathematics and all of that. So God is a God of, of order. There's meaning. And an emerald crystal happens to grow this way? Hmm. Hmm. I, you know, I don't know. So these are just little cool nuances that are here. That God is saying something. You have these living beings around him crying, holy, holy, holy. You have the 24 elders. You have this incredible scene where God is saying, I'm the center of it all. I'm the creator and my sovereignty rules over it all. And I love you. And I choose to have you in companionship with me and as co-workers in what I'm doing in the world. You know, going back to thinking back to the Old Testament, when the 12 tribes were named, each one had a stone, you know, what was it, the ephod or whatever that they had. So, and I don't remember which, you know, which each one had, but I just think that's interesting that he names this one stone, like an emerald, mm -hmm. to God. And yet there's 12 and when you look at the foundations of the New Jerusalem, what do you have? The same stones. You have those same stones that make up the ephod. The ephod was, what shape was it? Square. It was square. And it was used to do what? Aha. Pray to the Lord and get answers. Communicate with God. What? Yeah. There's an ancient, and I'll end with this, there's an ancient uh, Hebrew teaching that says the original Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses, Bible's clear, God wrote them with his finger. Right? Moses wasn't sitting there with a chisel. Right? And oh, some, say that oh hang on, yeah, hang on, let me make these stone tablets. <laughs> and let me chisel it. Okay, what is that? That's not how it, it was given to Moses. And the, and the, the an, most ancient of positions on this is that God, just like the New Testament says, or the Old Testament says, 
created it, wrote it with his fingers and gave them to Moses. They say that that was a cube and that the words were written, even in the language, the words were written and you could see three-dimensionally through each letter, to use it that way, right? All the way through, perfectly carved, and it was in the form of a cube, and that that's what Moses brought down and broke because of what the Israelites were doing. Fascinating stuff, right? Don't know what it means. Can't tell you that that's 100% true, but, but these things seem to fit. There's aspects that work all the way through. Pretty interesting, right? All right, well, Lord, we just thank you, Father, for who you are. We just pray, Lord, that you minister to our hearts, whatever it is that you have. You know where each of us are with you. You know what we need to hear and, and what we need to know. And you know what little seeds are being planted in our own hearts to, to draw us closer to you and to sanctify us. And Lord, we thank you for that. We pray, Father God, that your will be accomplished in our lives, our families, uh, Lord, in our church, in our country. And we just ask that you be lifted up and glorified in the service this morning. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.